I'm Jim Pullen. And I'm Joel Parker. And this is KGNU's How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, May 21st, 2013. Coming up, we're going to talk with Lindsay Allen, the Executive Director of the Rainforest Action Network, about the fight to protect rainforest habitat from palm oil plantations and how we can help. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. When is a supernova not so super? When it is an unnova. A supernova usually signals the death of a massive star. Such stars can be tens of times more massive than our sun. A supernova is an incredibly bright blast of energy across many wavelengths of light with the most massive stars generating a burst of gamma rays as it collapses to form an incredibly dense neutron star or even a black hole. However, observations indicate that there are not as many supernovas expected for the number of massive stars out there. This has led some researchers to speculate that some of these massive stars are ending their lives as unnova, in which the formation of a black hole is marked by the disappearance of a star rather than an electromagnetic outburst. In a recent paper written by Tony Pirro, an astrophysicist at the California Institute of Technology, he argues that rather than performing such a disappearing act, the star may actually have a last gasp where it emits a huge number of particles called neutrinos. The amount of energy transported by these neutrinos could generate a shock wave that escapes in the last brief moment before the star collapses beyond its own event horizon to become a black hole that shockwave might create a breakout flash that would be a unique signal of the formation of a black hole. The flash could last a few days, so trying to observe this type of event will require regularly monitoring the sky. There are several new observatories being developed that would do such regular monitoring of the entire sky for short-term changes like these. If such an event is seen, we would be able to say... A black hole was just born there. This paper was published in the Astrophysical Journal. Last summer, 98% of the ice surface in Greenland began to melt. It was an extreme event happening about every 150 years. In a typical year, only half the surface gets summery soggy. But now an international team of researchers, led by C.U. Boulder, are saying that this may become the new normal in the next couple of decades. Dan McGrath, a Colorado Ph.D. student, is the lead author on the new paper. He, describe, he describes what may happen to the last place where snow never melts. By 2025, we expect that the last major dry snow zone in the Arctic will be lost. Um, at that point, there's about a 50% probability that the entire surface of the Greenland ice sheet will melt every year. The scientists work at the most extreme weather station in Greenland, the Summit Research Station. We collected uh, as many um, temperature measurements as we could over the last uh, 60 years, and we were able to create a record um, at the summit of the Greenland ice sheet, and it showed a warming of uh, 0.02 degrees C per year over this time period. 
But when we look at that over the last 30 years and over the last 20 years, we find an increasing rate of warming from 0.09 degrees C from 1982 to 2011 and a further increase to 0.12 degrees C per year uh, from 1992 to 2011. The increased melting is being caused by ever warmer air that is transported over the ice and to anomalous atmospheric circulation patterns. McGrath said that the research is ongoing on these air patterns and how they may change in the future, but that it's the big questions that ultimately drive their work. You know, one of our biggest concerns is, is understanding uh, the mass balance of the ice sheet going forward. And this is very useful for any sort of predictions of, of sea level rise in the future. The team published their results online yesterday, May 20th, in Geophysical Research Letters. Scientists are interested in what you have in your gut. If you are willing to share some, some of that internal information and get involved in cutting-edge bioscience, there's still time to enroll in the American Gut Project, a massive, crowd-funded, crowd-sourced science project led by CU Boulder's Rob Knight Lab. By giving the project a financial donation, plus a swab from your tongue, your hands, your forehead, or your feces, you help fund the research and increase the pool of data the scientists have to analyze just what kind of microbes are in our guts and other places. The campaign can be found at Indiegogo.com. Just search on American Gut. You can find out how your microbiome compares to others and learn how your diet and lifestyle may shape your gut microbiome. Research by these and other researchers continue to show how your internal flora and fauna affect your overall health, and that when you've got the right microbes on board, meaning microbes that seem to benefit us in many ways, even affecting our brains. Now, that may seem strange to think that the bacteria in your intestines may affect how we think or behave, but there's growing evidence that it does and can even help us to keep from freaking out when we are faced with a scary situation. Back in 2011, articles in the journals Nature and the British Journal of Nutrition indicated that mice and human subjects fed probiotics like yogurt showed less evidence of stress. More recent studies indicate that there were connections, possibly by way of the vagus nerve between the abdomen and the brain, between the probiotic-supported bacteria in the gut and the stress and panic behavior of, for example, mice put in water. These good bacteria that may help mellow your mood and gut can come not just from yogurt, but many other sources of fermented foods, such as kimchi, kombucha, and miso. You're tuned to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Jim Pullen. Lindsay Allen is the new executive director of the Rainforest Action Network. She's in town to talk to food activists about palm oil and how the unbridled development of palm oil plantations, mostly in Sumatra and Indonesia, 
continues to imperil the rainforests and humans' closest ancestor, the orangutan. Welcome to How on Earth, Lindsay. Thanks for having me. A lot of attention has been given to the plight of rainforests over the years. It's one of the iconic issues of the environmental movement. And a lot of attention has been paid to palm oil. We'd like to think that all that attention has resulted in things. When I, uh, in, some, in some solutions, I remember the struggle to get unsustainable palm oil out of Girl Scout cookies. Yep. And there were a couple of Michigan Girl Scouts, uh, Madison Vorva and Rionin Tomtishan, who started working on that a few years ago. And how are they doing? So they're doing well. They're uh, pursuing, they're looking at where they're going to college and they're pursuing their activities. In terms of um, their connection to the palm oil campaign, we had actually worked with Maddie and Rhiannon when they came to us and said, listen, we've been working on this campaign for four years after we did a research project as part of our troop and discovered that palm oil, what we were educating everyone on our troop about, was connected not only to rainforest destruction and orangutan extinction, but to our cookies that we were selling to continue to participate in the troop. And when they came to us and said, we haven't seen progress, we said, we'd love to get involved. And we started uh, to amplify their voices nationally. So they did a media tour in New York. They were featured on nightly news programs. They were able to reach out to Girl Scouts all across the country through social networking to raise attention to the issue. And then they started in dialogue directly with the Girl Scouts and some of their bakers, such as Kellogg's, who makes some of the Girl Scout cookies. And as a result of that, they said to us, okay, great, let's, let's kind of step away from this. Let's give a company a chance. What um, Girl Scouts, the company, ended up doing is they said, you know, we think that palm oil can be produced sustainably already as long as we're buying from members who are part of this certification system. And so essentially, when you look at a product and it has a label, that's a certification system. And that's not uh, aligned with what we would want, but it is a step forward. It does show that the awareness is going somewhere. We see it as not being enough. And so what we're continuing to do at Rainforest Action Network is we've actually put the top 20 American snack food companies on notice because of their global influence in the palm oil supply chain. It's going into products you can find anywhere in your house. And we hope to, you know, really take the campaign to the next level and start to see the changes that are needed on the ground. Because just as the Girl Scouts, the organization has a policy, many American snack food companies have policies, but they're not doing enough to implement them. And so we feel that more consumer pressure is needed. And, and I really look forward to talking to you about how RAN implements and affects change. Let's take a step back and, sure. and look at the state of rainforests and the state of their ecosystems. There are a lot of animals and plants and large regions and people being affected. Can you, can you uh, give us the state of the rainforests? Absolutely. So many folks know about the Amazon. It's, it's one of the very popular rainforests. I think in America, it's part, part of our education system. And so if you imagine where the Amazon is in South America, that's the, the front of a belt. That's like a belt buckle. And the belt goes all the way around the globe. And that is the band of tropical rainforests. That's the one of the few places on earth where rainforests exist. And what we're seeing is that agricultural expansion for products like soy or to graze cattle, to grow palm oil, obviously to log, is starting to, to disintegrate that belt. And that's the risk that we're seeing. Because in that green tropical belt, there's 
endangered species. There's everything from the Sumatran tiger to rhinos to elephants to the Borneo and the Sumatran orangutans, which are now critically endangered, uh, that are found in Indonesia where we're working. And so this belt is also home to millions of people. So where we're focused in Indonesia and Malaysia, there are millions of people that are, have cultures that are intact and in some cases isolated. You see this in other tropical forests like the, the Amazon, for instance, uncontacted tribes. We also see many communities that have um, a relationship with a forest where they are dependent on it, even if they've started or they've entered a cash economy. So this is not only affecting the ecosystem, but it's affecting a lot of people. And it's also contributing to global climate change. So when we, part of the reason why we're focused on the rainforest of Indonesia is because you can look at the global emitters, the major emitters of greenhouse gases. And behind the U.S. and China, you see Indonesia there. It's not because they're burning coal at the same level that we are. It's because of forest destruction. And they're destroying these rainforests. They're lighting them on fire so that they can clear the way for these monocrop plantations, such as palm oil. So this reserve of carbon is being removed. Absolutely. And so there are these a specific type of rainforests that are peatland rainforests. And all of the leaf litter that's accumulated over millennia has been held by water. And when that water is drained so that they can clear and expose the soils for growing, it releases these carbon bombs into the climate. And so it's it's pretty disastrous plan to be both losing rainforest, disassociating people from their homes and communities, and contributing to climate change all to grow the cheap, the world's cheapest vegetable oil. And and we just have to say that the orangutan is a truly special species, as are the Sumatran tiger and the rhinoceros. Absolutely. And so it's very imperative to save them, isn't it? It is. So one of the on the last trip when I had gone to Borneo, which is one of the islands in Indonesia, a pretty very sizable island, we were traveling down a river, and on the right side, there's Tanjung Puting National Park. It's a world-renowned national park. Uh, Bruti Galdikas has, you know, she's one of the leaky women who came out and was working on primatology and was doing restoration and recovery of the species there. We're going down the river. That's on our right. And on our left, we saw a mother and a orangutan. And our guide said, we call those ghosts. And the woman I was with said, asked, why do you call those ghosts? And he said, because they're on the wrong side of the river. And the next day we went in and we toured and you can see that they're a plantation had expanded, so there was just a very narrow buffer that would not be enough to support these creatures over the long term. So it is having a disastrous effect on, on some of our closest kin. Some international coalitions have been formed, like the Roundtable on Sustainable Palm Oil. Describe that organization, and uh, is it being effective or is it failing? Yeah, the Roundtable on Sustainable Palm Oil is at, at about 10 years old, and the idea is that if, you know, conservation groups and industry and traders and consumer-facing companies all came together and said, we don't want palm oil to be leading to human rights abuses or clearing rainforests, could there be action together? And I think that that's a great intent. Unfortunately, we haven't seen once that roundtable became a certification, so you can actually get a label that says RSPO certified, um, we haven't seen the progress that we need to see on the ground. 
So what that label should be telling us is I don't need to worry, I can buy this product because it hasn't displaced people from their lands, it's not you know, contributing to, to climate change because it's been cleared on peatlands. And the RSPO, because there are so many industry players who are not completely committed to responsible production, we haven't seen it work. And so that's one of the reasons why RAN is active in this campaign. We want to go back to companies who had good intent and said we thought the RSPO label, the roundtable label, would be enough for us. We want to say, listen, this is how it's not working. For instance, if you have a label on a product, it cannot guarantee that there's not child or forced labor. It cannot guarantee that the rainforests have not been cleared to make the product. And until we see that, we don't think that that label, that the roundtable is doing enough. And that's why we think consumer pressure is needed. We've heard from these companies that if they hear from their consumers, then they would be willing to pay a penny more or whatever it is to get really responsible palm oil. But it's going to take pressure from us. We can't rely on that certification yet. Yeah. I and mean, as I look at a table that uh, talks about the major trade flows of palm oil, mm-hmm. I see that here in the U.S. we consume about 2% of global palm oil consumption. In Europe, about 12%. Uh, they have a big user. 14% in India, 12% in China. And in Indonesia and Malaysia, they use 22% of, mm-hmm. of global palm oil. So we don't use a lot here in the U.S. How can RAND's campaign have a disproportionate impact? Yeah, disproportionate is the right word because what we're seeing is although, well, first, U.S. consumption is increasing. As we saw the trans fat labeling come into place, companies started replacing trans fats with palm oil. Still a saturated fat, still a filler in foods that's not good for you, and that's you know, that's meant that we're drawing significantly now, upwards of 485%. This is how our demand is spiking. So the first thing to think about is our daily consumption is increasing, and that will be driving expansion into the rainforest. The second thing to think about is we have disproportionate leverage because these are U.S.-based companies that are operating globally. So for instance, when you look at a company like Kraft or Kellogg's, We don't want them to just change what they're producing in the U.S. Once we get U.S. consumer pressure on these companies that live here, work here in the country, and are part of our communities nationally to start making progress, we want global policies. And an example of how we did this is with Walt Disney Company when we were focused on the pulp and paper side. And we went to Walt Disney. We said, you're based here. We can have leverage on you. Stop using pulp and paper from rainforest to make children's books, but we want your global operations to be affected. So when they adopted a policy in the fall, it was not just for what they were using in the U.S. It was for everything from, you know, doll packaging in Russia to cruise ships in the middle of the ocean and the napkins that are, you know, passed out to give cocktails. So we want that type of scope and we want U.S. consumers to be able to leverage that type of influence. Now, RAN, I believe, is noted for, well, let's say civil disobedience, right? We are. Right. Absolutely. Tell, you know, tell us about, tell us a little bit about RAN and tell us a little bit about, uh, you know, the, the history of the civil disobedience yeah. uh, of fighting these corporations. Yeah, yeah. So RAN, I think, is, as folks know, uh, works on corporate campaigning, and we call it hard-hitting corporate campaigning because we do think that we, as citizens, 
should have a wide variety of tools. We should be able to use every tool in the toolbox. And so sometimes a petition is what gives, gives us the leverage that we need. And sometimes petitions don't work. Sometimes meeting will give us leverage. And sometimes, you know, a public outcry at an event will give us leverage. But when it doesn't, we want to take it to the next level because we don't think that it's just that corporations can have this type of impact on our daily lives influence our political system, influence all of our consumer choices, have control of, you know, our food at this point, and, you know, not allow us to use our full voice. So we see civil disobedience as a tool that we can use to show how serious we are, and to, to really put the burden on these companies to change their practices, or to hear and to have a different pain point that sometimes resonates with companies in a different way. And you have evidence that's effective. We do. So with the Disney example, just going back to that quickly, they had been a laggard for two years as we were moving the rest of the publishing sector. And then once we had, you know, Walt Disney Company and HarperCollins as the two laggards, we said, it's time to escalate. And what escalation looked like is folks dressed up as Mickey and Minnie one morning, locked themselves to, to lock the executives out of the headquarters and with signs that said rainforest destruction is no fairy tale. And it sent a very different message because two executives with their teams were in the RAN office within a week. So that's, you nice. know, that's an example of when it works. You know, they need to hear the message a little bit louder sometimes. Tell us about the Boulder campaign. So the Boulder event we're having at uh, Rembrandt Yard. And the address is 1401 Spruce Street. I'm just checking my notes quickly. We're having a conversation. It's myself and Anna LePay, who's the author of Diet for a Hot Planet, the daughter of Francis Moore LePay. Um, we're going to be having a conversation about food for us and climate and what we can all do to, you know, use our food decisions that we make every single day to have a really big impact. Well, thank you so much, Lindsay, for joining us very interesting. I'd, I'm going to try to, to attend that event myself. Great. Thanks for exploring how food activism can help the environment. Thank you. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. And thank you, Joel, for being our executive producer this quarter. The theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler, and we had some additional uh, folk music from Indonesia. And thank you, Jim, for being this show's producer. If you can't listen to How on Earth at our regular time, no worries. Just go to howonearthradio.org and subscribe to our podcast using the iTunes button. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Jim Pullen. And I'm Joel Parker.